0: Hello, and welcome to Double Take, a Newton investment management podcast that features timely conversations about big, juicy investment themes with brilliant minds who know the material better than many and most. I'm investigative investment research analyst here at Newton, Jack Encarnacio, and with me as always, Rafe Lewis, head of Newton's specialist investment research team. Rafe, pour us a big sudsy glass of what's on tap today, please.
1: With unbridled pleasure, Jack, today we bring you a deep dive into the massive changes going on in the world of big tech, how these mega companies mine our personal data, sell advertising and raise the hackles of regulators and lawmakers here in the USA and around the world. The reason said hackles are rising is this, we're still feeling the aftershocks of the 2016 passage in Europe of the General Data Protection Regulation, which is known affectionately as GDPR. Uh, and that is now prompting other governments to spawn copycat laws in some cases and, and attempting to even go further still. So discussing all that and more with us today is Richie Glassberg, pioneering founder of the Internet Advertising Bureau in the days after he set up the media giant website CNN.com. He's also the co-founder of Safeguard Privacy, which is a company that it was expressly built to manage GDPR and other data privacy regulatory issues, facing the digital advertising and marketing industry.
0: And we'll also be joined by Aurelian Portouais, who is Director of Antitrust at Innovation Policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. With Aurelian, we're going to look ahead to how a newly constituted U.S. Federal Trade Commission might try to rein in big tech, beef up antitrust regulation, and tamp down the ways behemoth tech firms use behavioral and personal data to generate billions in profits.
1: Geez, I feel like one of these big tech companies myself. I'm digging in deep here. That's right. Getting all
0: kinds of data. Well, Richie
1: Glassberg, welcome to Double Take.
2: It's great to be here with you guys. I appreciate you reaching out. And I'm always happy to discuss and chat about this insanity that is privacy laws that are raining down on us today.
0: Insanity. I love it. Well, the listeners of Double Take ought to know that Richie goes by the privacy Buddha. amongst many other names. So very much looking forward to the wisdom here. Um, In your opinion, Richie, okay, how did we get to this point in the evolution of big tech and digital advertising where a regulation like the GDPR was deemed necessary?
2: So, you know, I'll make it the simplest way I can. Uh, We forgot the consumer. About 10 plus years ago, digital advertising had one of its many morphings and it morphed into what is called programmatic. And by that, I mean that the buying and selling of advertising became even easier in a way that was not done by human beings and it was done by algorithms. When we started selling CNN.com in 95, 96, et cetera, et cetera, we sold directly to the agencies and you had a sales force talking to people. With the rise of programmatic advertising and algorithms taking over, we really forgot the consumer. And what happened was you would go somewhere and they would just follow you around with creepy ads. Now, I understand uh, the, the backers of this podcast. I really can't call out companies. Let's just say that it got really creepy that you would go look for a pair of snow mountain pants and everywhere you went on the web, those snow mountain pants followed you everywhere. That's right, right. It really just annoyed people because the truth is we've never had any privacy. The truth is in the offline world, you, know, you can give example after example that every time you use your credit card, that data has been bought and sold X number of times in the next 72 hours. But it didn't follow you around. And the consumers were blind to the fact that their every move was being tracked. And I think what digital did was bring that tracking forward by about 30 to 40 years. And it scared the living bejesus out of everybody because they realized that everything they were doing was being tracked.
1: Richie, enlighten me on something here, because, you know, following me around with an ad for Pants, It's annoying, right? But it's not like a a privacy violation the way I would think of it, right? It's not like someone snooping in my window and, you know, I don't know, reporting something to the cops or something. So, you know, how is this being used nefariously? I mean, is there something going on here that is worse than just, I guess, creepy?
2: Yeah, I actually think there is. So I, I really think that these profiles are building in ways that the average consumer never thought they would build. Um, Look, my co-founder, Wayne Mattis, is one of the most famous privacy lawyers the last 30 years. And he can give you, for your next episode, a great uh, primer on the fact of the European constitution versus the U.S. constitution and the, the ways we look at privacy, which is fundamentally different. But I think we forgot about the consumer. And I think we forgot about the contract with the consumer. And I think it has gotten so bad that that's what uh, drove the European Union to, to release GDPR. CCPA is not a copycat to GDPR. GDPR covers all humans. It covers everybody in the EU, whether you're an employee or a consumer. CCPA,
0: CCPA being, that, just for clarity yeah, for our listeners, is the California Consumer Privacy Act.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't call it a copycat law. Virginia is more of a copycat law. But, you know, I, I think... Um, I don't know how to, Jack, I don't know how to explain it to you, but I think the human beings realized how creepy this was. I give the example of the snow pants, but um, you can use your mind's eye to think of many, many more examples that are embarrassing or other ways that you wouldn't want it to be on the web. And I think it just became in everybody's face that they were capturing every single thing you were doing. I don't think people trust Siri and um, the Google at Home Assistant, Alexa, and all these things. I think, um, I think there is a huge uh, Orwellian distrust of all this because the, the tech platforms have not shown themselves to be good actors. They're doing it for the unbridled profit on every single consumer. And I say it that way because I think that is what they're showing instead of showing a modicum of restraint on what they've done. You could control all of this. They've just chosen not to.
0: Very interesting. So to bring it down to earth a bit in terms of GDPR, what that did was set out a series of compliance steps that folks that traffic in data really have to follow closely. And one of the key services, Richie, that your firm Safeguard Privacy provides is basically like compliance assistance for companies that have suddenly become custodians of sensitive personal information about their customers per GDPR and the way that defines that, as well as California Consumer Privacy Act and other laws have similar provisions. So can you give our listeners a sense for how firms large and small are complying with these new mandates as they deliver things like targeted advertising? Is it easy to get tripped up? Can you just set up a system easily and, and, and forget it to comply?
2: So that's a great question. Um, We felt in 2018 when we started this company, uh, my co-founder, you know, two major privacy law practices, the head of compliance and a major global Swiss bank. I've been in the ad tech world for a long time. I actually felt that these laws were going to proliferate. I was wrong. They were actually proliferating faster than I thought. These laws are very complicated. And I think the mistake companies make is they think it's just consent. GDPR is eight major rights for the consumer. Same thing with CCPA. LGDP in Brazil is, in Brazil is ten major rights. People are getting tripped up because they think it's just consent. The GDPR alone has, I think, it's twenty nine different areas of required documentation. It's not just a get. Did you get consent from Richie, Jack, or or Rafe. Um, this is highly complicated and can trip you up in so many different ways. Um, gee, I think California has 21 different required pieces of documentation. These are highly complex laws that are very hard to comply with. And when I looked at it, I looked at it and I said, hey, why can't there be a SaaS platform to help guide people through this? Why do we have to do this? the way law firms have been doing something for 500 years, where you know the law firm is the only one that can send in a junior associate with a set of questions. We actually built the software to allow companies to manage themselves and use their law firm for the power that that partner brings to the table, because the law is the law, but every company is different. So our theory was, if we build a SaaS platform that allowed people to go through that Gap analysis, if you will, guys, and then go to their law firm in a collaborative way and say, this is how I've answered it. This is what I've done. But I'm special because of this. Now help me be compliant. It would make people incredibly happy. And that's what's happened. People use us in a way to get more out of their internal and external lawyers because we actually wrote a SaaS platform that covers the entirety of the law. And it's scary to people, guys. I mean, our GDPR assessment is god awfully big, but it, the laws are so complicated. Once you go through it, it, it really is, you know, a lot of, um, and we're not allowed to say names on your podcast, a lot of major companies, a lot of la- major law firms are getting behind our platform because it allows you to do what you need to do, but gives you that gap analysis to the law. And each law is separate. So that's what's critical. We don't believe in a framework. We believe in you have to be compliant to every law. These are really scary laws that will trip you up in lots of different ways, guys.
0: Can you sketch out quickly for us, uh, Richie, sort of, you mentioned consent, the idea that, you know, if a brand whose website I go to is collecting information about what I'm doing on their website or even off their website... Uh, GDPR and other laws sort of set forth this idea that I have to consent to that. I have to click a button and say, yes, you can do this. Now, I'm sure there are a million different ways to read whether you know, appropriate consent was acquired. But like you said, that's just one box you have to check. What sort of a broad stroke overview for our listeners of the kind of things you have to now suddenly demonstrate to regulators if you're in the business of collecting data like this?
2: That's a great question. So it's actually not just consent, right? Um, it's now consent has gotten to inform consent. Are you honestly telling them what you're going to collect, why you're going to collect it, how you're going to use it, and how long are you going to store the information for? So consent itself has gotten more complex. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not giving you the legal definitions. I'm trying to give you the broad strokes for your audience. Mm-hmm but it's more than that. It's the right to be forgotten. It's the right to no discrimination, right? I think was it, uh, Ray, for Jack, you were asking earlier about, is it just the snow pants? Well, if they are bucketing you because of your viewing habits and they discriminate discriminate against you, that is a hidden cost that I think hurts consumers. So that right of no discrimination, that right to get all the information people have on you. I mean, there, it is much broader than just saying, hey, Ray for Jack, do you agree to, uh, that I put a cookie on you? What am I doing with that cookie? How long am I storing that cookie? Who am I sharing that cookie with? Why am I using that cookie? How long will this cookie be active? This is getting really serious, guys.
1: There's so many ironies here, one of which is that I used to think of cookies as something that was nice. (laughs) But anyway, another irony, though, it seems to me is that, you know, there's a lot of regulations that can have unintended consequences, right? Because once you set something out into the wild, you know, the behaviors of those it's intending to regulate can change and, you know, the world can shift under your feet. And in this instance, as I'm hearing you talk about this stuff, I guess what I'm wondering is. You know, these regulations were probably meant to uh, really target the big tech platforms. And yet, when I hear about all the compliance and all the complexity and all the legal, uh, you know, uh, difficulties that this entails, it sounds like it might actually advantage a large, deep pocketed company versus a small startup that's just trying to get out there and and do its level best. What What's your take on that?
2: I think you're absolutely right. But now let's unpack what you said. Let's go back to your first comment. I like cookies too, right? Especially the warm, gooey chocolate chip cookie ones. Those are good. Um, Amen. uh, Right? You know, a good cookie, a good oatmeal raisin. You got to love those. Uh, Now, I'm not in the camp of the hard, crunchy kind. I like the chewy kind. But, you know, we're each to his own. These, These laws do not kill all cookies. There's a lot of good cookies out there, guys. Let's be honest. When I go back to my bank, I have a bank, one of the top five banks that I do my checking and my savings. I've got a top uh, investment company that I've got my 401ks at. They need to recognize me. When I log in on my phone, on my iPad, on my computer, first-party cookies with all the security that entails, those are good cookies. I want first-party cookies. I don't want to have to authenticate myself every time with my bank. I want to be able to deposit a check. I want to be able to move money to one of my evil spawn in college. I want to be able to do the things I do. So let's not demonize all cookies. These laws demonize third-party cookies that you didn't even know were there. When you go to a website and you're going to look at something and you don't realize there's 50, 60, 70 third-party cookies being dropped on you, Rafe for Jack, and then they're following you around the web. That's what these laws are trying to do. These laws are trying to make it so that the real cookies, you know, um, fair use, um, required use, needed use cookies can be done. First party relationships where I have a relationship with my bank. I have a relationship with that big company that puts packages on my doorstep every day. I love that company. I've got my, you know what, you know, membership with the free shipping I want to have that relationship with them, and I trust that company. They've earned my trust. My bank has earned my trust. Those things are not being attacked by these cookies. These laws are attacking all the other things that you don't realize is happening to you out there in the programmatic world, where wherever you touch, somebody's putting a secret tracker on you and knows what you're doing does that make sense jack and race it does between these
0: things yes for folks that might not be aware of the difference between a first party cookie and a third party cookie that was very well explained my question is on on the consent required to track me right beyond just a a first party cookie you know to track me across websites to deliver more relevant advertising or to you know make sure that the things i see are in keeping with what i'm interested in and aren't duplicative or uninteresting to me um Consent has to be required, but I'm seeing, Richie, when you browse the web in a post-GDPR world, a post-CCPA world, a lot of different language, a lot of different strategies being used for cookie acceptance. It's not sort of like this standard has emerged where every banner looks the same on every website you go to when you go on your merry way, either being tracked or not, depending on your preference. Are companies, in your opinion, getting maybe a little too cute in how they do or don't obtain consent and how they display th- those consent banners? Are we still in growing pain phase
2: a- around that? I think it's worse than that. I actually think it's really bad. Um, and I know you guys don't want me to call it a company, but you know I'm going to say, because you already said, I was one of the four people that helped start CNN.com in my nine years working for Ted Turner. Um, and uh, I was the first uh, revenue guy and biz dev guy. And we built this, four of us, we launched it. We got it out around the world, ran it around the world. And I, I love CNN. I can't go to CNN.com on my iPad anymore or my phone because their consent is so bad, it doesn't give me any choices. And, and a couple of my buddies are still there. I still know lots of people there and I've reached out to them. Their consent string is so bad, I won't use a product that I helped found. And I, and I use that example publicly to people because you have to let people be informed about what you are getting. You can't force them. And I I think people are either forcing like that or they're not giving you the good choice. And I think there's too many different ways. I'll give you another example. My my wife and my evil spawn number two had to fly uh, back to college and we had to fly an airline we didn't usually do. And I had to download the app to do something. And look, it's a first party relationship. It's an app, blah, blah. The amount of personal information they wanted was ridiculous. But I had to do it because I had to get that information for Evil Spawn number two on my wife. So it's frustrating. I think companies are not, I don't want to, I'm going to say this. I don't think companies are really taking this seriously and thinking about the consumer first and rethinking privacy first ways to think about how you treat the consumer. They think all these laws are going to go away. They don't think it's that big of a deal. And I think they're wrong.
1: So it sounds like in those examples you were just giving, these are companies kind of exploiting gray areas and loopholes and not really explicitly violating the letter of the law. But let's talk a little about that for a second. So do we have examples of, of companies getting spanked by, by the governments uh, out there for violating these laws? What do violations look like? Has anyone been kind of kicked off the Internet here, as it were, for, for you know, being in the penalty box too many times? Uh, give, give us that sense.
2: Well, I mean, I can talk about it because this is public. It's over the last three weeks. The Belgium DPA and the EU has ruled that the IAB Europe's TCF, which is the consent framework. So a TCF was the technical consent framework, and I'm totally making this simplified. So if one of your listeners says I got a detail wrong, everybody chill out, right? But the consent framework was what the IB Europe tried to do to say that if I you know, without using names, I'm publisher one, Jack, you're publisher two, Rafe, you're publisher three, the TCF was that, hey. I got consent, I'm passing it to you, you're passing it to Rafe, you're passing it to Jack. Does that make sense, guys? It's a consent framework. Well, the the EU ruled that it was illegal and they've been doing it for two years. That is a major ruling that the the, the authorities in Europe have ruled publicly that the IB Europe is in violation. It's a $250,000 fine, which is a lot for a trade group, and have ruled that it is illegal. So every publisher in Europe is now operating illegally with this consent framework. And then three days later, they ruled the French, the Cnil, ruled that Google Analytics is illegal. Guys, you have to understand how big this is. Google Analytics, the number one analytics used by every website and publisher out there in the world, was ruled by the French regulator, the Cnil, to be illegal. These are major implications. Major implications to people out there. This is not This is not kid stuff.
1: Why is it major? Can you explain that?
2: If every publisher in Europe is using Google Analytics to measure their analytics and it's illegal, you don't think that's a problem?
1: <laughs> well, you put it that way.
2: <laughs> you don't think it's a problem that the major trade association for all of Europe's a bill uh, attempt to make consent between publishers was ruled illegal, and they have six months to change it. And that affects every publisher in Europe. I, those are two watershed moments, I believe.
0: Is it the end then, Richie, of cross site tracking? Is it the end no. of being...
2: No, because people are you know because the your first question was what are the big tech companies doing? Google's job is to figure out how to do this. Facebook's job is to figure out how to do this. All these big walled gardens job is to figure out how to keep control. And the unintended consequences is, you know, you know, the big G just had one of its biggest quarters ever for search. While we complain about consent, I still I only go one place for search, guys. I, I mean, let's let's be honest, call me a hypocrite. But everybody, you know, you know, you need something, you go to search. They keep more But, but are,
1: are you saying, are you saying, Richie, that you kind of disagree with these rulings or, uh, you know, what, what's the problem here? Is it I mean, it sounds like they're just trying to enforce what they already passed. Uh, but oh, they, I, are you I, saying something else has to happen here? Or?
2: No, I totally agree with the rulings. I'm, you know, that's display advertising versus search. I was just giving you an example of how complicated the world is. I think these rulings are absolutely right. I think everybody's got to change. I think so the, what else
1: needs to happen Richie like is there more that you see needed that that could come down the pike here
2: well let me give you a really scary thought in 2015 or 16 I think uh, at the State of the Union uh, President Obama with a Democratic House and Senate proposed um, a national data breach law like everybody's talking about there needs to be a national privacy law go check the books there's 50 state data breach laws on the books and no federal data breach law. I think the worst case scenario is I think you're going to have six more states pass what's called a comprehensive privacy law this year. I think at least one of those will have a private right of action, which will allow the plaintiff's bar to do um, class action against companies. Um, I think if you look at the second California law, CPRA, the ballot initiative that was passed it funded 40 enforcement lawyers for the California's AG's office expressly for privacy law that's more privacy law that's more enforcement lawyers than the FTC has in total you don't hire 40 enforcement lawyers unless you're going to start fining people i think you're going to have state by states i think you're going to have more countries around the world i think it's going to be a patchwork of legislation and i think it's going to get Incredibly onerous on companies in a fully digital world where data flows over bytes and bits to be compliant everywhere. I think it's going to be a nightmare.
0: Wow. Well, finally, Richie, when we think about how ad tech platforms work, you know, uh, passing uh, information like IP addresses, device identifiers back and forth. It really sounds like a very difficult situation to parse out, you know, who is the custodian of the data, who has the direct first party relationship with the end user, who doesn't, to say nothing of smaller publishers who just want to make some money off, you know, like banner ads or something and have no, don't necessarily have resources to staff up compliance departments to answer every inquiry from a, you know, a a regulatory body in Europe, for instance. Can you close us out with a sense? What do you hear from customers in the industry on these difficulties? Is it getting any easier or just harder?
2: I think it's getting harder. Um, you know that's you know that's why we built our software to try to make it easier for people. Um, a lot of people are saying we built the turbotax of compliance software that allows people to do each law and link them all together. That said, you know um, I don't think it's getting easier. I think I think there are way too many tool companies. We're not a tool company. We're a management platform, a legal platform. I think there's hundreds of tool companies. I think you asked earlier, and we talked about it earlier. Each of these consent strings and consent technologies are a mess. My belief is a lot of the companies you see out there that started three or four years ago will be what I would call privacy 1.0 companies. I think you're starting to see the growth of a lot of privacy 3.0 companies. By that, I mean companies that have thought about consent in a new way, a new look and feel, uh, better visualization for the consumers. There's a ton of them coming up that I think are amazing. I think you'll see technology address one of the key problems, which is the back end database systems. You have to understand that, you know, even the most modern of e-commerce companies have multiple back end systems. And part of these laws is the ability to get the information, forget the information, delete the information, whatever, whatever, you know, can I share the information, all the parts of this. I think there is a whole new wave of technology that's going to help fix that. I think small to mid-sized publishers are going to have to band together in consortiums. I think it's the only way they can survive. You can't do this on your own. I think it's ridiculously hard to do it on your own. Um, I am very concerned to your earlier question that this is Advantaging the big web walled gardens and disadvantaging the forest floor the canopy is getting protected and the floor is not getting enough light and water and that that's pretty bad guys um, you really need a flourishing ecosystem so I do hope you know um, we built a SMB version of our thing we're trying everything we can to fix it um, but it is... It is very difficult to understand who actually owns the data. And, and the worst part about it is, Jack and Rafe, is sometimes you're the publisher and you're not the owner of the data, but sometimes you're the publisher and you are the owner of the data. It's, it's just so hard to answer the question, right? Um, you know, when the person is logged in and they're your customer. Or the time where you that's where you own the data or another time where it's just a guess that comes on and you get the data about that person from somewhere else. So part of the problem is. And I don't know if this is the, what you want to hear, guys. Part of the problem is I don't believe that regulators understand the complexity of the ecosystem. And I don't think the regulation has kept up with the complexity of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I think these are solvable problems, but not with old world tools uh, of regulation. I do think we need regulation, but I think we need to rethink this whole thing about how the web works, where borders are, are there borders? Right. I mean, that's one of the hard things about GDPR. If if you and I were citizens of Europe and living here, we're covered under the GDPR. How does blank website that I go to for my you know, I love, you know, the Leicester football team. I'm a big Premier Soccer League fan. I go to a lot of UK sites. If I was a UK resident living here, they would have to know that. Right. You know what I mean, guys? It's just the 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 whole concept of borders and citizenship and and who you're protecting and where you're protecting them, it needs to be done right, but it needs to be done in a new way. and we have to recognize that the world has gotten so much more complicated in a digital world. Doesn't mean we don't need to protect consumers. I'm a big, I wouldn't have started this company if I didn't believe that we have to think of new ways to do this. I'm just concerned that the arms race, is not in the favor of the regulators guys and it's in the favor of the big walled gardens that throw tremendous amount of money at the best and the brightest and that's a hard game to win does that make sense gentlemen
0: it more than makes sense. And Richie Glassberg, co-founder of Safeguard Privacy, need to thank you an awful lot for getting us off to a great start on a complicated and thorny issue. But we're going to turn our attention to just what you teed up there, the regulatory picture, what might be coming down the pike here in the U.S. and abroad. We thank you very much for joining us on Double Take. Now let's pivot from the goings-on under the hood of Big Tech's data monetization machine and take a good hard look at how U.S. and European regulators are taking aim at those very business models. Are we, as many tech investors fear, on the brink of a tech lash, a new era of trust-busting akin to what we saw a century ago at the end of the Gilded Age? Is all that wealth generated by two decades of unparalleled growth and data harvesting set to evaporate like a browser history wiped clean? With us to explore this topic is Aurelian Portuaise, director of antitrust and innovation policy at the nonprofit, nonpartisan Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, which is funded by and advocates for industries that develop, sell, and rely upon technology. Aurelian, welcome to Double Take.
3: Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: Aurelian, I'm so happy to have you on Double Take because. You know, as you know, I've, I've spent weeks now on an investigative investment research project to better understand how the Federal Trade Commission under progressive chairwoman Lena Kahn, you know, how the U.S. Department of Justice antitrust division under Biden appointee Jonathan Cantor, and how a Democrat controlled Congress could target big tech and potentially upend their extremely lucrative business models. Uh, you know, you have written quite eloquently, I think, and persuasively on this topic. And to put it bluntly, you're nervous. Lena Khan opened a lot of eyes when she called for a new era of, you know, quote, structural separations, which sounds a lot like trust busting. And that, you know, that would blast apart these so-called gatekeeper companies that act as both platforms as well as commerce companies. So, you know, let's take a high level view here. Can we expect a raft of structural separations here? I mean, is there something huge that's imminent?
3: You said that there's a tech clash. I think it's partly true. Uh, it started with the tech clash. I mean, the neo-brandesians revolution started with the tech clash. But it's not only about tech, it's about big business, any sort of large companies, because they conflate uh, big business, large scale enterprises with monopolies. Um, as soon as, soon as you have a large-scale um, company, you're uh, labeled as monopolies. And they looked at many industries. And that's precisely the point of the executive order on competition that uh, President Biden has issued uh, last July. It was. It is very marginally about tech industries. Uh, so it started with the tech clash, but it's just going to cover every single industry. We see airlines industries, with the pharmaceutical industries. We see also the creative industries like music, um, films, entertainment. We see the gaming industries. So any sort of industries that somehow reveal um, some sort of bigness will be under the target of a progressive uh, uh, attack on on, uh, on these big businesses. So and, and that's sad because uh, not only it will uh, harm consumers, but also uh, what about big business in, in China? Uh, so is it time for America to shrink down companies, to lower down, and to have some companies that operate in sub-national, in, in regional market, in local communities, without even operating um, nationally? At a time where we have a, a market in China made of more than a billion uh, people with behemoth that are way larger than um the, the the US tech companies. Uh is that the right time? So I think it's the it's a it's a misguided policy at the very wrong time.
0: All right, Leon, let's drill down into one component of this uh forthcoming expected series of rulemaking about, you know, the way the digital economy operates. This is uh self-preferencing. That is the mm the practice of a of a digital platform to mm. sort of preference their own products when you search in them, for instance, over the products of, you know, uh suppliers that they don't own and operate. This seems to be kind of right squarely in the crosshairs of what we're talking about in terms of what makes a player big, right? Controlling both yeah. ends of that pipe potentially. What do you expect to see happen in that particular
3: piece of this? So, um, First of all, uh, the antitrust bills that are currently uh, discussed in Congress may ban self-referencing uh, for a handful of companies, for very few companies, like perhaps four, or five of them. Um, but I mean, the likelihood of those antitrust bills to pass is is very uh, is very uncertain. I, I would say quite low, and that's why precisely the FTC want to step up and and want to say, well because antitrust laws may not change uh, because there's a high probability that antitrust laws will remain as they are we have to create new rules and not legislation but new rules and that's through the so-called uh, ftc rulemaking authority the question is does the ftc has a mandate to create those rules this is not even clear. I mean, we just issued a, a report on the FTC rulemaking authority, where we argue that uh, in the past, the courts and Congress have clearly um, made. I mean, have clearly stated that the FTC doesn't have a, a, a authority to create new rules when it comes to unfair methods of competition. But still, um, the FTC, because of its uh, very ambitious and aggressive stance, may ignore uh, those judicial constraints and congressional uh, constraints and may issue those rules. And one of those rules, um, I mean, there's some rules that could potentially address non-compete clause in a, co- a labor contract or exclusionary uh, contract, but one of those rules may precisely target what you just refer, which is self-referencing. Uh, for our listeners, uh, it's important to know that we don't know what self-referencing is. We, we we really don't know. Um, it is not written in the law. The courts have never referred to it. It's just a, a notion that has been raised over the last few months, over the last few years, just to target those tech companies that use this kind of self-referencing. So we don't really know what self-referencing is. Is self-referencing tying where, you know, you sell one product, but with product A, I kind of force you to buy product B. Is self-referencing pre-installing? Like you buy a smartphone and you have a number of apps that are already pre-installed. Is this self-referencing because the the smartphone companies will self-prefer its own app over competing apps? Is self-referencing sort of uh, let's say vertical integrations where uh, you promote your own distribution channels over the distribution channels of competitors and is self-preferencing at the end of the day uh, I mean what they want to do is it leading to a duty to help rivals because at some point if you help yourself like you you, you self preference right and that is banned at some point, you come to the conclusion that you may be under a legal obligation not to help yourself, but to help your rivals. So if antitrust enforcement is about not only not harming rivals, but helping rivals, well, that's a completely different aspect of how firms compete. And, and unfortunately, um, I, I fear at least I'm not nervous, but at least I fear that the FTC may uh, go down that road, that 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 road of um, having this kind of mandatory obligation to help rivals. Uh, otherwise, if you don't help rivals, it means that you help yourself. That it means that you prevo, you privilege uh, one uh, your 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 own uh, product or your own service, and that is very very um, that is very awkward. for for competition and also for just proprietary asset. Like what is at the end of the day, the control of executives over their own companies and over their own product. And and also what's the incentive for them to create new product? Because creating new product may mean that these new product may compete with rivals, but at the same time they may have to treat all these products, theirs and the rivals without discrimination without uh, self-preferencing. So it leads to um, a clearly uh, a, a, a duty to help rivals, which is very, very alien to antitrust. But Aurelian,
1: you know, yeah. if there are structural separations, and I'd love to get your opinion on whether you think that's really going to happen and how yeah. it will manifest, but if there are structural yeah. separations then you don't have that perceived or real conflict of interest where you're both a platform and engaging in commerce. You're one or the other. You've been split right down the middle. And these huge tech companies that we know of today that perform multiple roles will be much more, uh, you know, in a box business-wise. So, you know, do you think – that the FTC is is going to try to split up some of these huge companies and, and and how would they do it would they do it through the DOj and the courts would it happen through some yeah. kind of rulemaking process or you know I, I don't understand
3: right um, so that's a very good uh very good point because just to be clear if it leads to conflict of interest. Yes, you can have a separation between what they call platform and commerce, right? The the fight of running the platforms and having commerce, like selling product and services. But if you go down that line, which is a very radical line, like prohibiting any companies to sell products without and r- running a platform, just think of very for for the sake of argument, just think of a simple of any supermarket. Every supermarket is a platform, like welcoming food. Uh, f- third party sellers, but also most of the supermarket compete and sell their own private level products. So if you prohibit that, then you prohibit a very common business practice. but let's assume for the sake of arguments that you want to go down that road and have this uh, prohibition of conflict of interest. Well, at the end of the day, and that's I mean that's um, what the european court have, de- have decided quite uh, at, uh, at the end of the uh, last year twenty twenty one. At the end of the day, you regulate those companies as public utilities because they will make so much less profits that you have to have some sort of price regulations. Basically, you, and that's what they do, they use, they refer to the systems of the railroads or uh, whatever in order to regulate those platform companies. So they want to regulate those platform companies by separating platforms in commerce. And regulating the platform side almost as a public utility where the regulators will have to decide what they do, at what price, how, to what extent they can discriminate, not discriminate, innovate, not innovate. Well, if we want the regulators to micromanage platforms uh, that way, well, that's fine. But let's be honest about the considerable unintended consequence of that, which means a huge decrease of investments, because basically those companies would be regulated as public utilities, so that they will ask for state subsidies or federal subsidies and just trying to invest and and innovate. And and also a huge cost for consumers, because we all know the um, unintended consequences of price regulation. So that's the objective. Just to answer your question, that's the objective. But now your uh, second half of your question was, how gonna, they're going to do that? Well, they cannot decide. Uh, they cannot decide it in um, in uh, at the FTC or the, at the DOJ. They have to sue, and it always ultimately will be the courts will decide it. Um, just like we had, I mean, uh, 20 years ago, a famous Microsoft case uh, where uh, the court decided the separation with Internet Explorer. But if I mean, first, it's very unlikely that the Courts will go down this kind of breakup, this kind of very radical breakup. Um, the last breakup that we really had uh, was AT&T, but it was itself created by state regulations. It was protected by state, uh, by federal regulations, and, and, and this the the situation was completely different. Um, if we want to break up those companies, which are the product and the result of innovative efforts. Uh, that's I mean that's a very high threshold uh, for the judges to be convinced of and it's gonna be very I mean very difficult for um, for uh, these um, regulators to convince uh, these judges to do so because at the end of the day you can you cannot only break up the company is that you have to manage you have to give the regulators the way the, 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 the some power to manage, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, the remaining companies that has to be regulated under some sort of price regulation. So you enter into a complete different regulatory framework, where it's not the market that regulate that just run those companies, uh, but it's the the, the, the regulator uh, by some sort of public utility regime. Um, I'm I'm quite um, I'm I'm doubtful whether or not the judge will go down that 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 road. And, and for what consumer benefits? Um, I don't know. Uh, because if you prevent even that type of competition, like self-referencing, well, you also prevent the platform's ability to offer, let's say, cheaper price for consumers because they won't have to enter it. They, they can't enter that so-called downstream market. They will have to stay in the upstream market. Well, it means that if they have Opportunities to offer a cheaper price or better quality product, they won't uh, be able to do so. So that's the great uh, consumer harm. And well, right. It, well,
1: the, the investor harm presumably would be. Oh that yeah. If you I mean, bust up these companies, even if they win in court two, three, five years later.
3: Yeah. You know,
1: as you're saying, could possibly happen, or maybe there'd be a legislative backlash too. But by then, you know, billions and billions of market capitalization have washed away
3: (laughs) definitely definitely and this is i mean it's a very interesting um um, question that they raise here because the shareholder value is precisely what neo-brandesians want to fight they want to get away with any sort of concerns for the shareholder value uh of of these companies what they want to what, what they want to bring forward is the kind of you know labor or workers' value. Uh, just say, for example, uh, 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 that's why they they, they they take a very aggressive stance against mergers. Mergers, well, the point of two mergers most of the time is just sometimes to do some savings, some increased efficiencies, so that the merge firms is more efficient than the two merging fir- two uh, firms uh, beforehand. And some of these efficiencies may come from Uh, cutting jobs, right? If you want to increase the technological, you want to robotize the the, the two companies, well, you may uh, increase innovation by cutting some some jobs. And that's exactly what neo neobrandedians don't want anymore. They say that each time a merger will lead to job reductions, job savings, then it's likely to be blocked. So these mergers that will increase Uh, efficiencies that will lead to more innovations that will just uh, uh, shift those companies to a new technological frontier uh, and will therefore increase shareholder value, will be blocked, therefore decreasing shareholder value on the basis of a kind of a labor value or workers value or any kind of public interest uh, agenda that they want to put into it. And, And so, the very idea of shareholder with a control also of proprietary assets of the companies, uh, is something that neo is not only disregard, but want to fight against, um, the, the proprietary assets of, of those companies because they want to make those companies as open as they, as they can, where things like patents, copyrights, proprietary assets are, more and more weakened, for the sake of uh, an increased open competition that they idealize.
0: Really, and if you could just, for our listeners' benefit, just expound on neo-Brandisians. This is the new Brandeis mm-hmm. school of antitrust law. You said right. that a couple of times. Just quickly, what does that denote?
3: So. Brandeis is uh, was a very eminent uh, lawyer and, and and justice of the Supreme Court in the in the 20s and uh, um, back back in the days and basically he advocated for only small businesses he was against large business uh, and he even labeled those businesses as being cursed like he wrote a, 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 some some papers uh, under the name of the curse the curse of, of bigness where he precisely said that what we will have what we have to do is precisely to deconcentrate the economy and to break down those companies in order to make them into small uh, small smaller companies even if it's at the cost of inefficiency because efficiency is not the value economic efficiency shouldn't be the value what he said is that that democracy or at least economic democracy like a country uh, littered with small companies all over that supply local communities everywhere, even if it's at a high cost, even if it's inefficient, but at least that they can all be together and uh, all around the country. That was the objective of Luis Brandeis. And, and and these objectives, well, the so-called neo brandesians wants to uh, resuscitate this uh, vision by saying that efficiency, efficiencies, uh, shouldn't be the, the 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 goal of antitrust or competition. It should be democracy. And and what they understand by economic democracy, which is very controversial, is that well, the more firms there is, uh, the better. Uh, it's not democracy in the sense that you will you will trust the judges or you will rely on property rights or you will you know these. These, these pillars of democracy that we all uh, we, we all cherish, but it's democracy in just increasing the number of firms in every market, when markets are defined very narrowly and very locally, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not yeah. talking about increasing the number of firms nationally. We're talking about increasing the number of firms in, I don't know, in uh, Rhode Island or in Wisconsin or in every state and even within those states. You see what I mean? So. Um, that's that's the point. Uh, you you just ignore economic analysis. You just ignore efficiencies and just increase the number of companies uh, for the sake of um, for the for the sake of deconcentrating the economy.
0: Well, we we zoomed all the way down to the state level there, as you were talking about. You know, imagine a scenario within Rhode Island, for instance, where right. there's some some interference in terms of the competitive dynamics. So let's geographically zoom way out then and go to Europe. Europe has put yeah. forth several new rules that impact big tech's data monetization efforts. Most notably, the Digital Markets Act, which yeah. expressly targets large market cap tech companies that are both platforms for other businesses like apps, as well as commerce companies that compete with the firms doing business on their platforms. Uh, so, what, what, what of that? What comes of that? And will that change how big tech does business globally, here, there, everywhere?
3: Yeah. So, um, the Digital Markets Act is a is a very Aggressive piece of legislation from Europe, but that will certainly apply in America. Well, at least it will apply to American tech companies almost exclusively. And will that apply to American consumers? Well, very likely, uh, because these tech companies will not discriminate between American consumers and European consumers. I mean, if you look at the um, uh, uh, GDPR, uh, which is the European privacy regulations, well, most of the U.S. tech companies have internalized this piece of legislation and applied it to American consumers like uh, European consumers. So that's why the Digital Market Act, which applies to U.S. Tech, tech companies, not only applies to U.S. tech companies, but would very likely apply in America. And that's and that's why also the FTC, but also the DOJ and and Tim Wu in the uh, in the White House, acclaim the Digital Market Act because brussels is doing what exactly they hope to do in america but at the same time if nothing happens in america in terms of uh, congress uh, gridlock or or the ftc inability to do uh, rulemaking i think they will be very happy to have the dma applying in america no matter what so what is the dma so the dma is a is a is a piece of legislation that i mean supposedly increased fairness and contestability in digital markets so Digital markets in the piece of legislation are not defined, so we don't know what what that means. Um, and and the DMA is applicable only to perhaps five, six, perhaps seven companies. Uh, the the biggest one, you, we all know uh, what we're we talking about if you just read the press. Um, and 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 these companies will be under some designations, so they would be designated as so-called gatekeepers, gatekeepers of. We don't know which markets. You know, you can be gatekeepers in the, in the cloud or in the search engine or as a smartphone. We don't know, but at least they will be designated as gatekeeper. And once you are designated as gatekeeper, which is like a designation process, you can think of all the litigations that will ensue uh, from this de- designation process. Also, the rent-syncing activities from rivals trying to designate competitors as gatekeepers. Uh, but let's assume you are designated, then you fall into the ambit of uh, the DMA, which is made of a wide range of obligations, of prohibitions, that prevent you from competing um, ex ante. means that you, the, 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 the European Commission will not have to demonstrate the harm or will not have to demonstrate the anti-competitive nature of the conduct just because you engage in that conduct, just because you... Your gatekeeper engaging one of, the, one of those identified conduct, and one of them is uh, self-referencing, um, then you just uh, you just liable and you just fined, or even uh, uh, with the risk of being uh, uh, broken up. Uh, so that is a very radical way. It's not it's not antitrust in the sense that there's no more judicial enforcement. It's the administrative enforcement that the European Commission decide who's designated and tells you ahead of any kind of anti-competitiveness or ahead of any kind of consumer harm what to do and what not to do. And, 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 and unfortunately, it creates this sort of what I call precautionary anti attitude or precautionary lead, uh, logic to uh, disruptive and to innovative um, behavior and conduct. Why? Well, precisely because disruptions and innovations is about leveraging your ability to do something in a completely new way. It's also about thinking outside the box. It's also about creating new things that disrupt so harshly the incumbents that, yeah, they may find they may seem to be unfair, but at the end of the day, it's not unfair competition. It's basically disruptions. I mean, Just one example, Uh, think of these tech companies, uh, how they operate in the financial industry, right? I mean, everybody, you and I can pay, you pay with your smartphone, right? You just pay through those tech companies in many different ways uh, when you shop. But therefore that's way of leveraging your power from a smartphone company to become something like a a financial payment company, right? But is it good or bad? At the end of the day, who are the incumbents in the financial industries? Are they the smartphone companies or are they the banks? Well, I think that the financial uh, institutions that are incumbents in the financial industry are, of course, the banks. So it is good to have these kind of disruptions that completely, uh, definitely, uh, uh, derail the way the very well, very large companies are established, so that consumers can benefit, and 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 these are the kind of things that the DMA will make almost impossible uh, to carry on anymore.
1: On Wall Street, we talk about the bull case, the bear case, and the base case. You know, there's three potential outcomes for any given situation, right? Uh, in this case, we're talking about the tax sector, right? So what is your, let's say, what is your base case for what the Lena Kahn Federal Trade Commission, you know, what the Department of Justice, what the Biden administration, what can we expect over the next few years in the United States? What is your base case belief in terms of rulemakings and,
3: you know, litigation? What should we see? I think, I think you know, rulemakings, making rules, as an average, history tells us that it takes approximately six years to make rules at the FTC. So it's very time consuming and it's very long. So it depends what is my best case according to what time horizon. Um, in the short run, I think we'll see a lot of aggressiveness, as we see, a lot of also legal uncertainty. I mean, I just refer, for example, to um, last summer, where he said that or uh, you can close the deals on all mergers at your own perils. So there's no guarantee that you can make a merger now and be certain that you won't have to unwin the mergers years after. So I think in the short run, I will see a lot of aggressiveness and a lot of legal uncertainties. And you all talk this, about
0: six years, Aurelien. You mean after appeals have been exhausted and judges have ruled? Certainly it doesn't no. take six years for the FTC to issue a rule.
3: Yes, it does. Wow. Uh, that's the that's the that's the that's the the the, the irony called fate. It takes six years on average to adopt a rule for the FTC. Then this rule is going to be applied, and of course, it's going to be litigated. And it's the faster judge,
1: to adopt a human.
3: Yeah, it's 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 long, right? It's, <laughs> okay. Because, so, what's your
1: what's your best case scenario then for industry? What do you think, you know, is, is you know, if we were to kind of really be optimistic?
3: I think if we have to be optimistic, I think there will be a lot of prosecutions and ultimately they will fail. So, I mean, I will say to companies, uh, put aside a lot of litigation fees, put aside a lot of money for uh, lawsuits, but ultimately breakups or massive change in the way antitrust is enforced by the judges, I am very uh, skeptical about that. Um, And also the ability of Congress to pass bills, I'm very skeptical about it. Uh, But reverse-wise, the Digital Markets Act is um, uh, unlikely not to pass. It's for sure it will pass. So the question is, to what extent America, and any kind of administrations, the Biden administrations, but also the following ones, uh, will be able to push back against the Digital Market Act. But those days, we see a full embrace. We see that what Brussels is doing is great, and we should embrace it. Um, I'm perhaps optimistic, and I think that in the next few years, uh, we'll have a pushback of the US administrations against the Digital Market Act. But domestically, I don't see a great amount of, uh, of, of change in the antitrust enforcement, in the prosecutions, in the, yes, I will see a, a real aggressiveness, a desire to engage into rulemaking. Some rules will be, will be made, but at the end of the day, uh, these rules may be very well constrained by the judge, if not made uh, invalid and annulled. So in the long term, in the next six years, in the next five years, in the next 10 years, um, I will see a pendulum change back to an economic analysis of antitrust w- with more reasonable principles um, away from the radicalism of progressives uh, that neo-Brandeans personify. I think the neo revolutions revolution is is uh, as, as uh, rising and may fall uh, sooner than we can expect.
1: Okay, so if I can summarize your point of view, there's not a hell of a lot of difference in a way between the bear case and the bull case here. It's just a matter of whether these rules can hold up in court. If they're right. thrown out, then you've got your bull case. But that still yep. means you've gone through five, six, 10 years yes. of total limbo, volatility, yes. unknowns, Yes. Huge question marks.
3: Exactly. That's why I said legal uncertainty, huge legal uncertainties about everything you do, about mergers, about those. Yes, that I see a huge amount of legal uncertainties over not only the next few months, but over the next few years. Yes. and for And, and for any industries and for almost any companies of any size, because if you think of mergers, there's always a big buying a small, So it impacts also the small companies not to be bought up, right? So that will have a huge impact for venture capital, for investors, for shareholders. Um, This legal uncertainty that the FTC, the DOJ is playing with, uh, weaponizing antitrust laws, I think would be very detrimental. But in the long run, I'm more optimistic. Um, Thanks to, I mean, thanks to the judicial enforcement of antitrust laws, thanks to our uh, judiciary, in Portuez of the Information Technology
0: and Innovation Foundation. A real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your insights.
3: Great. Thank you. It was fun.
4: Newton Investment Management, North America, LLC, NIMNA, or the firm, is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021 comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of a group of affiliate companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton, or Newton Investment Management, Newton. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, Newton Limited. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of Nimna, which are subject to change in which Nimna does not undertake to update. This publication or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstance in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by Nimna. Nimda makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with NIMNA, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Any forward-looking statements speak only as of the date they are made and are subject to numerous assumptions, risks, and uncertainties, which change over time. Actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in forward-looking statements. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by Newton Limited and may be deemed a financial promotion. Newton Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London e one jn in the Conduct of Investment Business. Register in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as investment advisors with the Securities and Exchange Commissions, (SEC) to offer investment advisory services in the United States. If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by either Newton Limited, which is availing itself of the International Advisors Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces. Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, registration requirement, exemptions, and ongoing registrant obligations. Or NIMNA, which is availing itself of the IAE in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba. The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, registration requirements, exemptions and ongoing registrant obligations.